If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, open with me to the book of Daniel. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1 this morning. Daniel chapter 1. And by way of, uh, I guess, a quick introduction into what we've seen thus far in the book of Daniel, getting us to verse 14, as we've seen in the first couple of verses, that there was a change of favor, and we saw that God's divine judgment got poured out against uh, his own people because of their sin, and that brought about a change of cultures. There was a deportation into Babylon, that was a succession of, of three different uh, deportations that took place. Daniel and his three friends were a part of the first uh, deportation. There was a change of names. We saw that with Daniel and, again, his three friends. But we also saw that not everything changed. They were, they were willing to, to succumb to what God had sovereignly ordained in their lives. But we saw that uh, when we got to verse 8, that there was a there were some doctrinal convictions in the lives of these young men, Daniel and, and uh, Ananias and these three friends. They had made up their mind, it says, that they would not sin against God. And we saw that there was some civil discourse that followed. They sought permission to not do what the king had requested. And we saw their faithfulness of walking by faith and not by sight in the continued pursuit of that desire of theirs. They had a persistence in desiring to not sin against God, and they, so they persisted in seeking the permission not to sin against God, which led in verses 11 through 13 of just making some observations of the, the walk of integrity that Daniel and his three young friends had and, and how they were seen there walking in wisdom. And the encouraging part, I believe, for myself and hopefully for the rest of us is we saw that these young people these were probably 11 to 14 years of age, that young people can have doctrinal convictions and, and walk in wisdom in such a way that would be pleasing to God. It's not something that you have to grow up and grow into. As young, as young lads, they were already demonstrating this capacity, which again is a great example for all of us. Now in the rest of chapter 1, uh, we're going to see the results of how God responded to uh, this walk of integrity and the faithfulness and the persistence in seeking permission to not sin against God. And we're going to see how God uh, responded by blessing uh, their obedience. And so I titled my message this morning, God Blessed Forever. And the first thing from verses 14 through 16, we see that God blessed them physically. Secondly, we're going to see how God blessed them mentally in verse 17, um, and also occupationally in verses 18 down through verse 21. The, the occupation that Daniel and his three cohorts would uh, participate in for the remainder of their lives. So, look at verses um, 14 down through verse 16 with me. And put down the words, God's faithfulness to bless them physically. Look at Daniel 1, 14. It says, so he listened to them. And this was the, uh, the commander of the chief, who the, the eunuch over whom was, uh, in res who was responsible for Daniel and his three friends. And it says that he listened to them. 
in the matter of their desire to not sin against God. And he went ahead and agreed to test them for 10 days, as was the request. In verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better than better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their cho- the choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Now imagine, wouldn't it be nice if every time we asked a favor of a governing official that they would listen um, and request the desire to not do certain things so that we wouldn't have to sin against God. Uh, Most, unfortunately, most governments tend to be deaf when it comes to seeking favors, especially favors that honor the Lord, which I think makes this another true sign that God is up to something special in this particular situation. And I think it's important to note whenever people say dare to be a Daniel, that does not mean that when you do things as Daniel did, God's going to respond exactly like he did in Daniel's life, in yours. And that shouldn't cause us to turn and say, well, then God must not love me like he loved Daniel, or that perhaps God doesn't still operate on planet Earth in the same fashion as he did then. The particular circumstances that surround Daniel's life are huge, and God is going to use them, as we're going to see towards the end of our message this morning, in a very substantial way in the ushering in of King Jesus and the coming of God's kingdom. And think about it, wouldn't it also be nice if tests like these only lasted 10 days? Have you ever faced a test in life where you're trying to live in a way that honors God? And perhaps it's in a small thing. I was reminded in, in putting this one together of the one time that um, I'd, I'd asked Lisa out on our first date. And um, I may have shared this during the Song of Solomon. I probably did, but I was reminded of it again in this instance. Something small, like, you know, we tend to sometimes think, well, in the big things in life, man, I'm going to try to go all out for God and do the right thing in the big areas of life. But when it comes to some of the small things, I mean, Daniel and his friends are objecting to a dietary restriction as to why this, enti- this test and the cyst, all of this got put in place. And so I was reminded of the time I was working at a restaurant, and I'd asked my, my now wife, my then she was our first date, and um, I guess I was sure hoping that she would become my wife. I probably had those feelings. Um, at least I, th- I do remember having those feelings. But um, the problem became was that I had been scheduled to work on the same day that we were scheduled to go out on this date, and I was sure tempted to just tell a little white lie that I just wasn't feeling real good. I'm not, I'm not feeling, I'm feeling a little under the weather today. I'm not going to be able to make that shift. Could you uh, cover that for me? The temptation was so real and so strong, and I can remember thinking, you know, Avery, and I just recently become a believer, and one of the things when I became a believer, one of the things I was concerned about was like, are, is this going to stick? Are you, are you really going to do this? I mean, you, how many times in the past did you do that? And you kind of did that rededication thing, and then a year later you'd do that rededication thing. 
And then I, I truly got saved, and I found myself thinking, you know, that's just not the way God calls his people to live. Even in the small things like this, I mean, how, how bad of a, of a deal would that be after all? A small little white lie, I just can't make it in, I'm feeling under the weather so that I can go on a first date with this gorgeous girl, right? I mean, it's, how many of y'all would do that? Or how many of you might be, guys, would you be tempted to do that? Yeah, I sure was. And, um, and by God's grace, I opted not to. And I thought it would be better to maintain integrity in this little area that nobody's even going to know except God, which is the most important person of all. I'd rather maintain my integrity with God and call Lisa and say, I can't go on this date. And it's in small things like that. And God honored that. And I ended up getting a phone call about an hour later from another guy who worked there. And so he said, hey, I heard that you're wanting to take this shift off. If you still want it, I'll take it. I'll take it. And I said, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And I called him. I said, hey, we can still go. And it, was all, and, it, and it went. And here we are today, 30 years next year. It's amazing. These small little details. But in the small details of life, listen, there, you are going to find in your life tests that come, little ones like that and perhaps bigger ones. And we need not think that God is uninterested in the small tests and temptations and trials that come our way. We see in the life of Daniel the, the, the keeping of a dietary restriction that he placed over his people was so significant that he uses Daniel and he honors Daniel and his three friends in ways that they could have never even imagined. Amen? So think about that. Every time you're adversary tries to tempt you in such a way that would cause you to sin against God, remember there's something far more significant than that happening in the course of your life. You cannot see it. Daniel could not see it. He could not have perceived what the Lord was preparing and planning for his life. And neither can we. We need to be those who recognize that God is involved in the details of our trials, our temptations. He wants us to consider them as joy when we're going through trials, and he wants us to pass tests such as this one. Now think about it. Daniel's writing this letter as an account of his life. He's writing this to us as an old man. He's thinking back. We know that the duration of this test it wasn't simply a 10-day test. It would have been a 1,095-day test to be exact because that was the duration of his training, the training that he went through in order to serve in the king's court. And it's my thoughts that if at any time Daniel and his friends would have ceased to have a more healthful-looking appearance than did the rest of the Judean boys during the entire time of that testing and during that time of captivity, I'd think that perhaps the, uh, the eunuch who was putting his life on the line in order to grant them this test probably would have changed his mind and said, well, that is off. You're going to eat the king's food or you're going to die. And so God has indeed granted them the blessing physically. I mean, think about it. How, <laughs> how can an 11 to 14-year-old boy go on a veggie diet and gain weight? How else can you explain it other than the providence and faithfulness and the blessing of God? 
So never underestimate the reality of what God can do when you walk in obedience to Him. God, I just don't see how you could make this happen. I just don't see how this could work. You don't have to see. Are are you living by sight? No. As believers, we're called to live by faith, not by sight. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm super impressed with Daniel again with regard to his dietary prohibition as prescribed in the book of Leviticus chapter 26, I think it was. Um, I hope you are as well, and I hope that this inspires us to walk in obedience to God in our details of life as well, because that is true worship. It was in Mark 8, 34 and 38 where Jesus teaches things that I believe remind us of some of the choices that Daniel and his three friends made. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to put a lot of emphasis on words in the scriptures when I see them, and I ask questions of those words, and I say, um, how seriously is the must? Surely, Jesus must have meant must, and not perhaps in so much that he indicated that this was something that must happen. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. A recognition of the high calling of discipleship, a recognition of the, of the, tr- of the reality that you are going to be denying yourself And that you're going to be taking up a cross in order to truly follow hard after Jesus. And when I use language like follow hard after Jesus, that sounds like I'm talking about some big kind of thing. But what it means is that whenever you're tempted to tell a little white lie in order to bring advantage for yourself in a situation over here, you choose not to do that. That's going hard after Jesus in the details of life. Amen? I believe that it's that which makes up most of the warp and wolf of our lives. Our circumstances are never going to, I shouldn't say never because I'm not God, I can't see the future, but more than likely are not going to be something akin to what Daniel and these three youths, his friends, had to endure. It's a choice. Let me ask you, have you wished to come after Jesus? It's your choice. Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Jesus never got anybody's arm and wrenched it up behind their back and said, man, I'm going to force you into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to make you do what you don't want to If you wish to come after him, he says, deny yourself. I see in the life of a young man like Daniel... Uh, the reality of making that choice, that hard choice, even as a young boy. Listen to this quote from David Garland in his commentary on cross-bearing. He says, Cross-bearing refers to self-sacrifice, even to the point of giving one's life. And this is what Daniel was willing to do. The call for self-sacrifice, however, is given the soft sell in too many congregations and television ministries today. 
Unlike some contemporary peddlers of the gospel, Jesus does not offer his disciples varieties of self-fulfillment, intoxicating spiritual experiences, or intellectual stimulation. He presents them with a cross. He does not invite them to try the cross on for size to see if they like it. He does not ask for volunteers to carry one for extra credit. This particular demand separates the disciples from the admirers. Disciples must do more than survey the wondrous cross, glory in the cross of Christ, and love the old rugged cross as beloved hymns have it. They must become like Jesus in obedience and live the cross. Man, that's pretty hard-hitting, isn't it? And, and it seems to me that in the culture in which we live, the tendency among most believers today in, in seeing something as hard-hitting as this, but let's ask ourselves, is it any less hard-hitting than this? Which would be more hard-hitting? What we're about to see in totality in these passages here, or this? Is this not just kind of a, an explanation of what Jesus is saying over here? And when we read things like this, sometimes as believers in our culture today, we're tempted to raise the little red flag of legalism. Ah, that's legalism. And I've never once seen anywhere in the Scriptures that says obedience to God was legalism. I, I just haven't seen it. Now, if you're trying to go beyond the letter of the law, if you're trying to go beyond that in order to make yourself look like you're super spiritual around your buddies, then perhaps that's a form of legalism that the Pharisees practice very religiously, and we oftentimes speak harshly against, as did Jesus. But to say that Daniel would be legalistic because he was maintaining a standard on some, bed, on some dietary restriction that he was faced with, that that would be legalism, I think would be an overstretch to say the least. And I hope that you perhaps might feel that same way Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Now, again, in Daniel's circumstances, his context, culturally, significantly different than ours. Bonhoeffer's circumstances, and culturally, significantly different than ours. We haven't been called to sacrifice and to give our lives literally in a life and death situation as these men were. And again, I, I say this by repetition so that it perhaps will sink in. We are more faced with some of the the more smaller and minute temptations that I just explained of myself and I could give others and you could give some examples from your own life where obedience to God and the details of life is what we're called to do and that's when we're called to carry our cross. To die to self-interests and to pursue His ways as being more important than our ways. That's the essence of what it means to come after Christ. A willingness to die to self and take up your cross and follow him. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is a paradoxical saying that reveals the important spiritual truth that those who pursue their own life, their own ease, their own comfort, their own desires, their own interests, their own kingdoms, their own way of doing the things that God is calling them to do, 
self-interests, such individuals, sadly, they seek not to lose their life, they're seeking to save their life. And in doing so, they lose it. Daniel and his three friends, by the choices they made, had clearly lost their own life for the sake of God and the covenant relationship that he had made with them. And unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the other Judean boys who were a part of that first deportation. As we're going to see when we get a little deeper into the book of Daniel, they seek to save their own lives instead. There was a large statue that was put in the plain of Dura and at the sound of the, all the instruments bowed down before that and there were four individuals left standing. So there was a ton of other Judean boys who valued their lives as being more important than the covenantal relationship they had with God that when they closed their eyes they would see God. So what does it profit a man, verse 36, in gaining the world, saving your skin, but yet forfeiting the soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, is there anything that you could name that you said, look, if I could get this now on earth, if I could procure this and make it mine, I would forfeit my eternal soul for this? Is there anything that's of that great of value that you would give up your soul for? What profit would there be in that? So Jesus said in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those who are ashamed to publicly identify with Christ and thus have little or nothing to do with following Him except when convenient. And our modern Christian culture has crafted a lot of really convenient ways to describe following Jesus that don't call for sellout. That don't, that don't challenge us to strain the, the, the reality of the temptations that we're facing on a day-by-day -day basis of not going back to that website and looking at that trash or not saying that little white lie or not doing this or not doing that. We're preferring to save our lives and our pleasures over the reality of walking in obedience to God. Daniel was not ashamed of being a Hebrew or of following his God, of living according to obscure doctrinal distinctions that his God had laid over his life. And when we read the word of God, we see that God has some obscure doctrinal convictions that he has laid over our lives as believers in the day and age in which we live, and we need to be as committed and convicted and as convinced as was Daniel so that we can let our light shine as Daniel did his. And I don't know about you, but I'm convinced if there had been other Hebrew boys along with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, if there had been other of those Hebrew boys who were willing to have stood with, with them and in essence to stand for God the way that they had 
stood for God, I think that God would have shown them the same kind of faithfulness and kindness as he did Daniel and his friends. God's no respecter of persons. He does not show partiality. His faithfulness is to anyone willing to live obediently before him. We see in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. In Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. And I know that's kind of truncated in, in its usage, but go back and contextually, you'll see that he makes no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Slaves are free. There's no partiality with God. And we all know this Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 passage. We've probably memorized it uh, at some point or time in the other in our lives. And we believe these truths to be effectual in our lives as well. That if we will trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding, but that in all our ways, even in small dietary restrictions, if it says don't, you don't. Even in dating relationships, if it says to not be dating an unbeliever and not to marry an unbeliever, you don't. Because they're an unbeliever. And what do un the unbelieving and believing have in common? They're not sharing much in common. They have a different value system. So these peculiar distinctions that God lays upon us keep the marriage bed pure. Except we could go through some others. These are the, these are the areas in which you acknowledge Him in all your ways and He will make your path what? Straight. You want a straight path in life? Just put the Lord and His Word ever before you each day. Seek to walk in obedience to Him in the details of life. And every step you take, you can be assured that God is making your path straight. But Pastor Ben, what if I take a straight step and I find myself in a world of trouble? I find myself in a situation like our brother Nienheis here where he's had his third eye surgery on the same eye. How could that be God's blessing and favor in my life? You know, and in talking with David about this, sorry to use you here, David, but he's never once complained about this. He's, he's, this is just part of God's sovereignty over his life. And this is the way you learn to, oh, remember whenever we mentioned about the need for memorizing James chapter 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. There can be trials that come and hit us in the flesh, trials of the flesh. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and he asked that the Lord to remove that. I kind of joke with David because they sometimes say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye condition. <laughs> I don't know, David. It could be perhaps a little bit of a thorn in the flesh, and he doesn't care. He just wants to glorify God with his life. Come what may. Whatever it may be. So you're saying, Pastor Ben, he will make my way straight. I've come to this, in this, um, this Christian culture in which we're living today, the idea that God makes our path straight means what? That God's going to make everything we step into glorious gloriously prosperous with money and health and the wealth and all that stuff. That gospel is preached almost everywhere today. But interestingly, you don't find that in New Covenant theology. And so what they do is they go back to Old Covenant theology and it says that if you obey me, your cattle will never be, without, will never be barren. And your wife, she will never miscarriage. And your crops, they'll always produce. And so they take those old covenantal 
theological truths that were true for the nation of Israel, and they wrongly assume that the church is somehow like a new Israel instead of a brand new man where he's removed the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile, and in Christ, he's building a new body, a church, a body of Christ. And it's a new covenant. And so the, the blessings, if you will, they, they flow a little bit differently. But we have this wrong notion that if we, in all our ways, if we acknowledge God, he makes our path straight, that somehow is supposed to mean that everything we do works out exactly the way we perceived it should have worked out. And that's like a, a self-made, we're making God into the, into the image and likeness of our own creation. We've made God into like a rabbit's foot that we pull out of our pocket and we stroke it and, and believe that he's going to do exactly what we want, how we want, and when we want it. Because after all, I'm acknowledging him and he's going to make my path straight exactly the way I want him to make my path. And that's just doctrinally not sound. And the church and the church culture today would do well to get back to a New Testament understanding that all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be, what does it say? What did Paul say in the book of Romans? Will be persecuted. It just doesn't fit. And as the old saying goes, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And you have to let go of the old and recognize the new. Are you following me? So in other words, that next step straight that you make, that God made straight for you, might land you in what seems to be a world of hurt. And it's in that world of hurt that he's putting you on the shelf as a trophy of grace in the onlooking world that's watching you in your life. And he's saying, see my kid? Notice how my kid will re respond and react and will live to the glories of God, come what may. And you never know how God's going to use your life and your obedience to him in those details of life, like Daniel didn't know, for the glory of his name and the building of his kingdom. You have no idea. So take your next st step straight that the Lord lays out for you Come what may, be obedient to him all the way to the end. Amen? That's what we do as believers. And let me tell you, we serve a faithful God. Well, notice what else God did. Look at verse 17. His faithfulness to bless them mentally. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Here we learn that God gave Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah knowledge and intelligence from their study of the wisdom books there in Babylon, which will prove to be really important um, in the lives of these four boys uh, moving forward in that they're going to be elevated to positions of personally serving the king. And this, by the way, is the third time we see in the book of Daniel chapter 1, the third time where we see that God has been acting in and over the affairs of man, even into the lives of individuals such as Daniel again in verse 2. We, said, we saw that God gave 
Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This was something that God did. We saw in verse 9 that God granted Daniel favor in the sight of the commander in order for the commander to grant his request. And here in verse 17, we see that God gave knowledge and intelligence to Daniel and his three friends. This affirms from Daniel's perspective, again, as the old man looking back and writing the history and the, the story of his life and what God accomplished through him in his life is showing God's sovereignty even over the affairs of his individual state and the details of his life. John MacArthur notes in a book that he wrote on Daniel, An Uncompromising Life, on page 49 here, he said, God enabled Daniel to interpret dreams and to receive visions. Visions and dreams were both a means of revelation from God, the former occurring while awake and the latter while asleep. So Daniel was gifted as a seer or prophet. As such, he was to serve as the very vehicle of God's divine revelations. This verse then becomes the backdrop for the rest of Daniel's prophecy. Now, this is true of Daniel without question. But notice this piece right here. He, Daniel, was to serve as the very vehicle of God's divine revelations. And I'm here to tell you this morning that in this culture and in this context, as a child of God, though our lives are not going to be inscripturated or canonized and for an eternal remembrance of what God has done and what He's doing historically, you, He, you, you can serve God as a vehicle in the lives of others with regard to what? God's divine revelation. We're not giving forth new divine revelation, but what are we doing? We simply open up the Scriptures... And we take people to the book and we say, thus saith the Lord. And I want to re-emphasize, I can't re-emphasize this enough, that our lives are to be used as a vehicle bringing forth divine revelation to people who need to see. Amen? I mean, this is as true as the nose on our face. So when we... When the church scatters, when the church goes out this facility and it scatters into this world, and we're in the world, but we're not of it. But when we scatter, we're to live in such a way that we recognize that there are people who need the Lord. There are hurting people who need the Lord. And sometimes people are willing to forfeit their soul for a piece of shiny object that they think in this life, because this life's all I have. And so while I'm living this life, this shiny object that brings me happiness and contentment and joy, it's all I got. So I've got to live for it. Those people need the Lord. And you can be a vehicle to bring God's divine revelation to let them see that once they cease living in this, in the, on this earth, their eyes will see God. And only those who will enter into His presence forever and ever and ever are those who have trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the remission and forgiveness of their sins. That's it. People need the Lord, amen. We can be such a vehicle of God's divine revelation to people in our lives, as is the case for Daniel. It seems that here in this Old Testament narrative, we see 
Daniel living out what the Apostle Paul canonized or scripture, inscripturated for us in Colossians 3, 22-24. I found this to be interesting because Daniel went in as a slave, did he not? He was deported, deported, excuse me, he's deported into a foreign land. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. And Daniel tried very diligently and he was successful because God blessed him. He was trying to obey those who were his masters on earth. He chose, he didn't want to sin against God, so he kindly sought permission and God granted that. But do this not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. When you think of Daniel... In the three years that he put in service as a slave to the king in the learning of the language and the literature in order to serve at the king's table, and he did so for probably 70 years, we see that he did so with sincerity of heart, and he did so fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work hardly as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Daniel practiced this principle long before the Apostle Paul wrote these inspired words in what we call the book of Colossians. He was writing to the church of Colossae. So in all these things, we need to be mindful that it's the Lord Christ whom we serve in all the details of our lives, like Daniel. It's the Lord Christ whom we are serving. Whatever the Lord has put our hands to do, to work at, to work heartily at those things as unto the Lord, so that we can, in that context, perhaps be a good vehicle for the Lord to bring revelation to lost people who need to know that Jesus is the only means by which they can be saved. And a good, solid work ethic, as Daniel practiced, is a great way to open such closed doors. Amen? Now notice how... God blessed the obedience of these lads, 18 through 20. He blessed them occupationally. He says, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19, The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them. I think that's called a test. Do you like being tested? No. About every matter the king consulted them, he found them, here's this, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So here we have Daniel and his three friends at the end of their three-year Babylonian educational program, and they, along with the other youths, are getting presented before Nebuchadnezzar. They go through the interview process, and he discovers that Daniel and his three friends are ten times better than anybody that he had serving in his own land, which I believe is, again, one of those indications that God is up to something good. Only God, I believe, could have done this. Now, this without question, does not remove the hard work that they invested. It does not mean that they didn't work hard and study hard. We need to be those who work hard and study hard and pray hard, knowing that ultimately it depends all on God, right? The slack hand does not tend to find favor 
in the day of challenge. The diligent hand does. And we see that principle all throughout the scriptures. We see this in Daniel's life. And even though it clearly articulates that God granted them such things, favor and granted them wisdom, we see the work ethic in these young boys, 11 to 14 years of age, again, is the, is the presumed age of these young boys. The work ethic that these young boys brought with them into this foreign land is remarkable, is it not? And it might be because in the Hebrew culture at your bar mitzvah at the age of 13, they treated you as if you were a man. We still have young adults in college that are being coddled like little kids. No wonder they have the problems that they have these days. Here's an 11 to 14 year old young boy who at the age of 13 was probably going to go take a wife, 100 acres of land, and till the land and, 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 and farm the land and make a living for him and his family. It's amazing when you call young people to high standards, it's amazing that they can reach those standards, is it not? But when you lower your standards so low and you give nobody vision for something great to accomplish or something to achieve, they will also rise to that occasion as well. I've got one more really awesome John MacArthur quote from his book, An Uncompromising Life. Listen to this one, and listen to this one closely. I think you may find this one very profound. Daniel served in his influential position for 70 years. His integrity was uncompromising. His integrity and uncompromising character has far-reaching results. For when I see the wise men coming from the east... I think of the impact Daniel's theology must have had upon the Chaldean astrology. God gave him the influence that I believe led to the decree of Cyrus to send the people back to their land, influence that led to the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah and to the reestablishing of the nation of Israel, influence that eventually led to the wise men to come to crown the king who was born in Bethlehem. Daniel was behind the scenes of the history of the Messiah as well as the Messiah's people. Daniel had unlimited influence, for though through his prophecy he brings homage to the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who reigns forever. Isn't that good? Think about that. A life simply lived in obedience uncompromisingly to the glory of God. All through a simple Judean boy who was unwilling to partake of the king's choice food and drink. Obedience to God in the details of life. That truly is a life of worship, is it not? And God wants to take your life of worship before him and use it for magnificent things as well, to the glory of his great name.